When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Happy Friday. How's your day going so far? Any plans for the weekend? Anything we should know? Coming up today, Ray Murphy, the father of Ashling, says her name should never have been used during a Doyle debate on immigration. Why you are the master of your career journey and how to unlock success. Well, it is January. Good time to hit the reset button. And the priest, who apparently has a knack for horse racing tips and even gave his parishioners a top tip at the altar just before Christmas. And it came good. So how much did they win? This was in Abbey Leaks, by the way. Details coming up in around two hours' time. When you call 0818 300 103 is my number, you can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. And by the way, late, late show, all about music, and I'm not talking about the musical that lost you and me and every other licence fee pair, 2.2 million euro. But the late, late Eurosong competition, the contenders, are all featured in today's papers. And you even see Patrick Kilty in great form. Apparently, Johnny Logan will always be his favourite. And he says he's been waiting such a long time, could be borrowing the white suit, the white socks, the white knickers, all in tribute to Johnny. Uh, hopefully no white tights as well. Now... On the front pages as well, the cost of the RTE musical, the toy show, the musical, 2.2 million euro, as I mentioned. The board of RTE was not formally told about the production until after the contract had already been signed. And when it became clear that they wouldn't draw 100,000 people, as they had hoped, and instead they only drew 11,000 people, there was a chance to cancel this to limit the financial damage, and it wasn't taken. So says a new report that was published yesterday, and when I say published, the names of the executives involved are all anonymised. You can read more in the Irish Times today. Front page of the Irish Independent... Prostitution ring family use Google Law to hide their crimes. So if you happen to end up before a judge, you're locked in jail. It's reported on by the various newspapers, the radio stations, all media. After a certain length of time, you can go to Google under your privacy rights and say, I have a right to be forgotten. And so anybody searching for your name after that point on Google, will not be able to find any reference to your past. Which is perhaps OK if you're a teenager who made a mistake and broke a window or stole an apple or whatever misdemeanour you were before the judge about. But if you're a hardened criminal, a repeat offender, and you're able to use it to be forgotten, I don't think that's quite what the rule was intended for, do you? 
Anyway, that's the front of the Irish Independent today. Immigration. Barely a day goes by, there isn't a story about immigration. But the tide would appear to be turning. According to the front of the Irish Times, the state will suspend the signing of new hotel contracts for Ukrainians because the number of arrivals is falling sharply. Now, just to make a distinction between people coming from Ukraine who are one category when it comes to the official documentation, they're allowed into Europe much more freely than other categories of international protection applicants. There will be a rule change and the law is being drafted at the moment and making its way through the Oireachtas and it will mean much lower benefits and also accommodation for a much shorter time for any new arrivals from Ukraine once this is enacted. And it would seem perhaps the word has gotten out. So, according to a briefing paper given to the Cabinet, up to the 22nd of January, uh, there were 796 temporary protection uh, applications granted compared to 2,150 in the same period last year. So, it is slowing down. Maybe part of that is... The economic decision, it could also be changing conditions in Ukraine. Uh, the conflict very much in the east of the country. Perhaps the west of the country is rebuilding more and more. Who knows? Now, that's what's on the front pages. Let's go inside. Let's find a little bit of good news. Well, if you are in the parish of Abbey Leaks, you will know Father Paddy Byrne. He is frequently on this programme from time to time as well. But apart from being the local curate, he has quite the interest in horse racing and was even part of a syndicate, I believe, once upon a time. And so, in his Mass, just before Christmas, his message to the congregation included a tip for the Ladbrokes King George VI chase, which was taking place at Kempton Park in the UK on St Stephen's Day. And he recommended putting your money on the Irish-trained Hewick. And the odds were 12 to 1. And seemingly, many people in the congregation followed his lead and had a nice return. And it's not the first time he's given some tips to his parishioners, by all accounts. Where did this interest come from? Where does he get his information? What tips does he have for this weekend? Let's ask him, hopefully a little bit later. How much is baby formula at the moment? The Irish Independent has a feature on it. And they quote Junior Minister for Retail Business, Neil Richmond, saying many families are struggling with the rising cost of baby formula in particular and that he's going to examine if support can be given to some of these families. The one thing he won't do is put a price cap on the brands. Now, my two are, well, he's nearly nine and the other is ten, so I can't remember even what it was uh, priced at, at that stage, but I remember nappies as well being just prohibitively expensive. The whole experience of having a baby, you have to get out the checkbook. So if you're buying baby formula now, how much are you forking out? And have you any advice as to where you can get the best value?
If so, please do pass on. Little bit of good news, though, for anybody who's trying to make the ends meet. Energia has become the latest energy company to announce a price cut. So this morning they have confirmed 7.5% of their unit rates from the 1st of March. And if you are Mr. or Mrs. Average Energia customer, that's a saving of €129 per year. If you're one of their gas customers, it's a little bit less. It's a 5% deal. So, pressure is on everybody else. Ryanair has become so frustrated with its recruitment problems, they have decided to buy a housing estate close to Dublin Airport and to rent accommodation to cabin crew if they sign up with the airline. So 25 homes were built in Fosterstown in Swords. We don't know exactly how many Ryanair has bought, but according to the Irish Times, the deal would be worth between 8.5 and 10 million euro. And Ryanair... Uh, oh, apparently, yes, 25, yes. They bought all 25 homes there. And they intend to provide, they say, affordable rent to their cabin crew. Now, Michael O'Leary's definition of affordable, the cabin crew's definition of affordable, who knows, but that's what many companies are doing. Those who have scale, the big multinationals, if they cannot attract the best and brightest to Ireland because accommodation is a challenge, they go and they buy the accommodation. So if you're trying to get on the housing ladder, you have even more competition. You have the state, and now you have companies. And then, of course, you have the big residential funds as well. Joy. Uh, well, maybe if you're a public sector worker, it's going to become a little easier to get on the housing ladder if the new pay deal is accepted. Very late into the night, and after 19 hours of talking, the unions and the government representatives struck a deal that will see pay rises of 10.25% over two and a half years to the country's 385,000 civil and public sector workers. Now, it's back on the unions to put the deal to their members to see if it gets across the line, but it's a little bit less than the unions have been seeking, 12.5%. But the government side had initially offered 8.5%, so they met somewhere in the middle there, 10.25%. Not sure why it took 19 hours of continuous talks to just meet in the middle, but hey, there you go. A letter to the Irish Independent. My boyfriend is really stingy with money, and it's beginning to drive me up the walls. We've been together a year and a half, and he's perfect in every other way. He just hates splashing out and describes almost everything as a waste of money, and it's not like he's short of it. We don't go for fancy meals on weekend breaks. Or, well, let me clarify, we don't do it unless I pay. He bought me a really cheap gift for my last birthday. We just started talking about booking a summer holiday, and already he's suggesting one of the budget deals in a grotty hotel in the Costa del Sol. I truly don't think I'd enjoy that at all. And I'm actually dreading Valentine's Day. I spoiled him last year, but he got me nothing. I've tried to initiate the conversation by telling him my love language is receiving gifts. He says that sounds like I'm materialistic. 
I don't want to break up with somebody over money, but I don't know what else to do. Get rid of him! He's a Scrooge! Absolute Scrooge. I mean, if he didn't buy you anything for Valentine's Day, fair enough, if you lavished him and he didn't get you quite the same amount, that would be one thing, but if he just didn't get you anything at all, why are you hanging around there? Am I wrong? Oh, wait, three, thirty, ten, one, oh, three. Final one for now. Why do you trust some people more than others? Researchers at the University of Aberdeen believe it's all down to facial features. So if your eyes are close together, if your eyebrows are lower than the average person, then you will be perceived as untrustworthy. Well, if it's according to science, it must be true, because we'd never misbelieve a scientist. The caller suggests it should have been called Toy Show the Fiddle. Hmm. Somebody made money, all right. Somebody didn't lose out, whether it was... Those who simply got the contract for the venue, and those who brought in external supplies. But that's not their fault, not by a long shot. Whoever was at the top failed to do their homework or failed to properly assess the risk and assumed ticket sales would be all rosy. That's, that's where the blame lies. But the report published yesterday anonymizes all of the decision makers. So... You don't really know who did it. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Get exclusive content now on the Midlands 103 smartphone app. Midlands 103. Good morning. Now, as one listener points out, on that letter to the newspaper from the girlfriend who's clearly going out with Ebenezer Scrooge, that sort of behaviour is one to watch. It can later manifest into control, not just of how he spends his money, but how she spends hers. Big red flag. More than a few listeners point that out, so thank you. Now, still on the agenda today, the COVID inquiry to try and find where mistakes were made in Ireland's response to the pandemic so that in future health emergencies we can make better decisions. That's the theory, but it's not going to apportion blame. And you'll hear from one Midlands TD who believes that's a political cop-out. Do you agree? Now, if you were listening yesterday, you would have heard the full exchange between independent TD Marion Harkin and Thishuk Leo Varadkar, on the topic of immigration. And she had asked that a conversation be had, and he uh, was, well, let's just say he wasn't very receptive to the idea. Here's his response, just a, a short sample. And, and in relation to... Just the Taoiseach, Deputy, please. Let, let the Taoiseach... Let the Taoiseach respond. You, you, deputy, let the Taoiseach respond. And deputy, in, in relation to your remarks about me, I, I have engaged in this debate. I probably engage in it every other day uh, in my constituency, in this House and in this media. Uh, only a few weeks ago, uh, I wrote a detailed article uh, published in the Sunday Independent, setting out what our immigration policy is and was, what the facts were and what they were not. And I'll keep doing that. But I need a bit of help. I need a bit of help from people in this house who... who, 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 who oh, you're not. Uh, sorry, sorry, Ken. Sorry. At which point he sat down. Deputy Marion Harkin is with us. Uh, Marion, good morning. Good morning to you, Will. 
and to your listeners. So, from the outset, what were you trying to achieve and what sort of debate uh, and what tone and with what stakeholders are you talking about? What I was trying to do was to raise some issues in Leinster House that are raised around many tables, many families speak about them. And this is where uh, communities, many communities have said to me, look, we're very happy to to welcome families, to try and integrate them in, in some sort of reasonable numbers. Um, but we do have an issue when it comes to 50, 60, 90, 150, in some cases, single men uh, arriving in our town and village with, you know, I'm not going to go into it, no services, all of that. I just, but that wasn't really the issue. Uh, I'm, I'm not raising the issue of services or whatever, just about the fact that so many um, young men uh, would arrive in their town and village, because this is what people say to me. And loads of women said to me, and men, about their sisters and wives and daughters, that, that women have a concern uh, about men. And I used, uh, I, I, I spoke about two years ago, and I just mentioned the fact, and it was the only time I mentioned it, I said two years ago, thousands of visceral statements from so many Irish women, I said, followed the horrific murder of Ashling Murphy. And I went on to make, um, to say some of the things that have been said at the time. Yes. And I said and, to the and, and if I may cut across yes. you now, because this is where the Taoiseach started his objection on the basis that the person who murdered Ashling was an EU citizen. He was from Slovakia, had been living in Ireland for a long time. And he doesn't feel that is relevant to a discussion about people coming to Ireland seeking international protection, that they are two different categories. And he would be right if that's what I said. But what I said was, I said that, Taoiseach, we believed women two years ago when they made these statements about Irish men. Those are my exact words. And I, my next sentence is, why do we not at least entertain those statements from women now when they speak about the idea of 40, 50 asylum seekers arriving in their town. I said, why do we not take these concerns as genuine? But perhaps the most important point I made, which was the next sentence, I said, these are my exact words, I said, let me be crystal clear. There is no evidence, zero evidence, none, 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 that they pose any greater threat than 80 Irish men. So all I was asking the Taoiseach to do was to take on board the concerns of, of many women expressed to me, and, and men, uh, that, that there was a heightened concern uh, when large groups of men came to towns and villages. But that, that concern was no different than to uh, if there were 
group of Irish men. Mm. Okay, so if we may split the conversation just for a moment, and I want to come back to those concerns that you've heard. We've heard from Ray Murphy, Ashling's father. He called the programme yesterday and he wants it to be known that Ashling's name should not be used during a discussion on immigration. How would you respond? Well, I'm I'm gutted. I'm all I care about now hearing that is that a grieving family would think that I would use her her horrific murder as a political point. I'm just I'm just devastated to hear that because I didn't and three times in the intervention afterwards when the teacher came back and he, he took the two points. I, I just mentioned it as when it happened. I never said another thing and the Taoiseach came back and, and put together what I'd said in a completely different way. And I said to the Taoiseach, I said, do not misquote me. I said three times, I said, there's no evidence. And thirdly, I said, I cannot be misquoted by the Taoiseach and I make a reasonable comment. Okay. So well, look, I know I know Ray is probably listening to the program, and if he wishes to respond, um, but would you apologise to them? Oh, a thousand, thousand percent. I can't imagine their grief and their pain uh, in a million years, and think that the Taoiseach deliberately misquoting what I said. And I tried to make a reasonable point. Okay. Give that family more pain is just, I'm, I'm just devastated. I'm just devastated. And not for myself, for them. Okay, let's move on then to the second part of the conversation, which would be the concerns you described earlier. And the other side of the argument is that many young men certainly in parts of Africa, are the fittest and healthiest in their families and therefore they are the most able to reach a destination country um, and get processed for asylum and and put down roots and then have their families follow subsequently. It's young, healthy, able men who do that. That's why sometimes they are overrepresented within the asylum system. And for the state, where else should they go um, if not into accommodation together? Because there may be a similar argument. Let's say there was a, a, a mixed grouping, uh, families and, and elderly people and, and young men. Would that perhaps be better, a more integrated approach? Well, I do think it would be a more integrated approach. But to be honest with you, uh, the government belatedly, I think, are coming to the point where they're going to build larger reception centres. Um, because we have, and, and my last comments to the Taoiseach were, I said, I want you to have the debate, warts and all, and to manage this in a reasonable and rational way so that we can honour our commitments and bring communities with us. And and this is extraordinarily difficult. And I said that at the beginning. And and perhaps I'm sorry I raised it now. But, you know, as a politician, if if I don't 
try in the best way I can to articulate what people are saying to me, well, then there, there's an issue. But to come back to your question, uh, how do we manage? Because that's, that is the difficult question. And I think belatedly the government are coming to a point where they're saying, certainly I've heard lots about it in the last two or three weeks, that they will look at the larger, at larger centres. Uh, and they also need to make the system work uh, so that people get their applications processed. And if they are granted asylum, as some are, then they live here like anybody else and uh, they're not in any kind of direct provision or supported housing. They're like anybody else. And if not, then they are asked to leave. And, and the whole system doesn't work. And I can understand, uh, even though I'm really annoyed with the Taoiseach for twisting my words, I, I can still understand that he's under a lot of pressure. But also, communities are under a lot of pressure. And until I believe the Taoiseach takes on board that there are genuine concerns from communities, from women, but also from men, from their, their mothers and sisters and daughters, but also some of them from themselves, um, un until we can bring those communities with us, then we never manage to do this in a reasonable way. Well, unfortunately, it's becoming more and more difficult to have conversations that are nuanced. We're in an age where it tends to be binary. You are either in one camp or another. There's no such thing as black and white and always shades of grey. I, I think people can listen to what you've said, make up their own mind as to where you stand. And thank you very much for taking our call. Thank you, Ray. That is Marion Harkin, Independent TD for Sligo Leitrim. Do you feel like you're in a dead-end job? And do you look at somebody else and say, they just looked their way to success? Well, first of all, is there such a thing as a dead-end job? And is success an accident? The home of the Midlands Today Show. Right here. Let's turn it up. Monday to Friday from 9am. Midlands 103. Do you feel you're in a dead-end job? And is there such a thing as a dead-end job? Is it all how you look at it? Martin Horan is here. He's a human resources consultant from Moat in County Westmeath. Morning. Morning, Will. Good to be with you. You want to pose an interesting question on a Friday morning. So, as they say in the Leaving Cert, explain. <laughs> Compare and contrast. Yes. Um, well, this issue of a dead-end job, of course, people look at it in terms of there's no opportunity for promotion here. I'm not going anywhere. Mm. But if you think back, uh, let me ask you yourself to jobs that you had before you became the radio star <laughs> um, uh, early in your career. What sort of jobs did you have? I worked in a 24-hour garage, McLaughlin's in Newbridge. Now, that's a really good example. Mm. OK, um, you were probably doing it as a student. You were earning a few bob. Um, I, I myself, as a student early in my, in my time, worked as a builder's labourer uh, for, for Mick Glennon and Moat uh, during the summer. Um, and it taught me an awful lot. Um, you know, being sent for the long, the long stand or for the glass hammer, um, being tested by your workmates, you know, that sort of situation. Yes, yes, yes. Never mind the sort of thing that you would have faced in the, in the uh, retail situation, handling money, handling customers, handling stock. The amount of things that you learned there that actually have contributed to what you are now and who you are now 
is very, very significant. And I do understand and appreciate that people are in positions and they say, oh, there's nowhere to go here. There's always somewhere to go. You know, when you turn down a dead end with Google Maps, we don't do it so often now. When you turn down a dead end, you don't just park the car and sit there. You think about, OK, mm. I'll turn around, I'll turn left, I'll take an alternative. In career terms, look at the experiences that we've had and say, OK, how am I going to use this in the future? Coming back to my being sent for the, um, the long stand uh, or the glass hammer, I'm sure everybody's experienced things like that. Oh, yeah. I remember customers asking me for low fat chips. <laughs> I love it. And, and if you think about that, even later stage in careers, when you're moving to a new um, uh, management position, moving to a new organization, moving to a new culture, um, you're going to be tested not necessarily in a, a, a tricky way like that, but people will test you in terms of your experience, your knowledge, your expertise, your interpersonal skills. So that uh, experience with the guys on the building site in Moat when I was there taught me you're going to make mistakes and people are going to laugh at you. It's how you respond to that. Sorry, back then people were going to laugh at you. How you respond to that and how you show, yeah, I, I, I can take it. But here's one of the challenges. You mentioned the Google Maps analogy where you turn around. We can feel a certain inertia that we are stuck or comfortable or that turning around is insurmountable. Now, is that all a trick of the mind? There are practicalities, for sure. And people are in positions where they have mortgages, they have families, um, and they're you know tied into um, practical requirements um, and it may not be possible today or this year or until the kids leave primary. Um, but that doesn't mean it's never possible. Um, can, can I broaden this out a little bit? Mm. A friend of mine, you might know him, uh, Darren Doyle, gave me a book recently, Darren Doyle of, of uh, oh, Studio 93. Yes, yes. You know Darren. And the book was called Start With The Why. And I Simon was, Sinek. Yeah, very good. Uh, and I'm kind of halfway through it at the moment. And it, it, brought me, it brought me pause. And, and I was listening to your promo for the programme uh, this morning. If you want to talk, talk to talk to Will. And that's your why, in a way. I heard your interview with Marion, and that was really interesting and, and very important uh, to give her the opportunity to respond uh, and to clarify and to apologise, which she did. And that's what you're doing and what your why is. Now, come back to the question that you're asking about not being able to turn. Thinking about what my why is helps me to say, OK, I might not be able to do this now, but... Mm. I can prepare for the future. So what can I be doing now that will help me when the opportunity arises that I'm going to be able to make that move? Um, Simon Sinek, just to expand, his theory uh, is exemplified by Steve Jobs versus yeah. Michael Dell. Yeah. Both were in the computer business in the 80s. Both were of similar scale. Look where Apple is now. Mm. Michael Dell wanted to build computers. Steve Jobs, his why was to change the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, And as an issue uh, as well, there's another book that I like, I don't know if you've read this one, called The Look Factor, written by a guy called Wiseman. Wiseman was very interested in what make, makes people feel they're lucky or unlucky. He put an ad in the press in the UK, if you feel you're lucky or unlucky, contact me, I want to do research. People did. Uh, 400 people did. And he published this book based on the research that he did. And I'll share two of the criteria with you which are relevant here. One of which was he found... Uh, lucky people tended to be more open-eyed, open-eared on the lookout for opportunity, whereas unlucky people tended to focus on the task at hand, where they are, what they're doing, get that right, etc. Interesting. The second criteria that he found as a difference was that lucky people tended to be more resilient. Um, 
Uh, so when bad things happen, and they do to lucky people, they tended to generally, you know, it could have been worse. Or uh, what was the learning opportunity here? Or how can I make sure this doesn't happen again? Mm. Now, they're interesting. Turn the negative into a positive. But the, the, the experiments that he did, did were fascinating. For the first one, he gave both groups a task, a newspaper. And he said, I want you to count the number of pictures in the paper. So the unlucky people, I told you, they're very assiduous. They focus the concentrate and came up correct. 67 pictures in the paper. He gave the same task to the lucky group, the lucky tranches. They also identified 67 pictures, but did it in a fraction of the time. How? Because they counted the pictures on the front page, four or five. And when they turned the page, they read the headline, which said, in this paper, you can stop counting. <laughs> that was there for both groups. Yes, yes. But it's about being open. I'll come back to that issue in a moment. Yes, so it's not merely the difference between optimists and pessimists. No, it's a bit more than that. But that's not bad in relation to that. Now, the other issue in terms of um, resilience, etc. The example that he gave there wasn't a task. It was a, imagine you're in the branch of a bank, uh, standing in the queue waiting for the teller. Armed robbers burst in the door and you get shot in the arm. How do you feel? Well, you can imagine what the unlucky people said. Typical, my luck. You know, that branch, that time, that day, mm. I get, mm. you know, shots are fired, who gets hit? Why me? Yeah, that, but I'm unlucky. Not why me. Uh, you know, it's kind of mm. to be expected. And what did the lucky people say? Do you think? I'm still alive. Exactly. I could have been, I could have been dead. Jeez, wasn't I so lucky? Only in the arm. But actually, again, coming back to this issue about open-eyed, open-eared, looking for opportunity, they went a little bit further and said things like, I wonder will I get compensation from the bank? <laughs> 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 they were Irish, obviously. <laughs> oh, low blow. <laughs> one of them said, wouldn't that be a great tale for the grandkids? And this is the point about seeing yourself in that stuck position. Is it glass half full or glass half empty? Is it optimistic? or What's the opportunities mm. that I might have here? Is that learned behaviour? Well, we're into the whole area of personality and personality preferences. And Let me rephrase. Can it be trained? I think we can change how we think. I think we can change how we feel. It, generally, even uh, very deep personality traits and preferences, the psychologists and psychiatrists will tell us that, that can be worked on. For example, addictive personality. You know, with the 12-step program, with coaching, with support, all of that, that can be addressed. The sort of things we're talking about are not quite as... Uh, deep-seated as that. We're talking about having a bit more of an open mind, keeping our eyes open, looking for the positive in situations um, and recognising in career terms, my career is my responsibility. Mm. It's up to me. So, so bring it into a modern context. AI is coming in. It's going to change the jobs market. Some will see this as bringing doom upon their particular career. Mm. Others will look at What's the opportunity? How can I be more productive? Where can I take this? So we've only scratched the surface, but you have a webinar which may be of interest to anybody who wants to go deeper. I, I For quite a while, I started during COVID and I started doing these short little uh, two, three minute clips on LinkedIn, the business Facebook, if you like. And they were very popular. And as a result of that, uh, Darren, and I, Darren and I have worked on produ production of more significant online training programs on offer on my own website. But I decided to do something more in the middle. So not two and three hours length, but uh, webinars, kind of 20, 30 minutes. And I have one coming up on Thursday, the first of them to be broadcast on Thursday, uh, called Managing Your Career. Um, and some of the stuff we've talked about this morning won't be featured in it, uh, but other very practical suggestions and steps 
uh, for people. Uh, and, and probably one of the one of the top issues, uh, Will, is, is, is about relationships. Um, you know, the, the phrase, uh, everyone matters. Uh, you know, the quote is a quote I like, which says, beware the man who's nice to you, but rude to the waiter. Mm. Um, I think it's really important for all of us to recognize. And AI is an interesting uh, comment that you make, and particularly the whole world of blended work, etc. Or even you in your conversation with Marion a little while ago, the importance of having a reasonable relationship with that person. Uh, is is really going to be vital, whether I'm a, a mechanic in motors or, or, or principal officer in the Department of Education. Um, the ability to handle that, to recognise that people matter. Um, that's one of the, the issues that I'll be talking about in some more detail on Thursday. So for anybody who wants to know more, Martin, how can they find you online? Well, LinkedIn, um, if you look and search my name, Martin Horan, and I have my own website, martinhoran.com, and the, the webinar will be available at a later stage uh, on the web on the uh, website if you don't make it on Thursday of course it'll clash oh no one o'clock will it be ideal for you you'll be able to to, to link in I, I hope you can attend <laughs> Martin thank you very much for your time Martin Horan from Moat Love the Midlands Love Midlands 103 Good morning have you ever done a skydive in your 70s Not too many people have and you're going to meet a lady who has signed up and, well, you'll hear why very, very soon. Also, one of Ireland's top tech companies is based in Athlone, is going from strength to strength and you could soon be training with them using virtual reality. More on that in half an hour. The Friday panel takes you through everything you may have missed over the last seven days. And uh, we are also hoping, hoping that there may be a prize or two on the way. More details on that very, very soon. When you call 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text, you can WhatsApp 083 30 10 103 powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. COVID-19. Mistakes made in how Ireland responded to the pandemic should be explored during an inquiry. But no blame will be apportioned under what the government is proposing. And it's not going to be a tribunal. It's not going to be a statutory inquiry. This no blame approach, the Taoiseach believes, will be the most effective way to conduct the investigation in a timely fashion, which will be a year or two, he believes. He briefed opposition party leaders on the plans yesterday. Aintu's Padre Tobin has been telling Cameron Clark what Leo Varadkar said to them. First of all, we were told that the government have a plan to uh, collect um, submissions in terms of the terms of reference for what they call an evaluation on what happened during COVID in Ireland. And uh, that, that would be a, a, an evaluation that would run for about 18 months. Uh, to come to his decision. And um, I was very concerned, very, very annoyed with the government in relation to this because, it, first of all, we have to accept that the COVID crisis and the policies that the government implemented were probably unparalleled in Ireland for generations. Uh, it was the enormity of, of the impacts of COVID. They demand a proper investigation into what happened. And an evaluation is not uh, an investigation. One of the, the, the big differences would be in the government's plan is that it's non-statutory. 
And what that means is that there will be no power to compel people or papers uh, to attend this so-called evaluation. Now, that will be an absolute disaster because basically people could refuse to go to this. Um, they could you know, um, ignore this evaluation. It would blunt the ability of the state to really ascertain the truth about what happened. Um, and also the government spoke about a no-blame approach. And you know, I understand that COVID was very difficult. It was hard to, to make decisions and that mistakes were naturally going to be made. And I also understand that people need the ability to make mistakes because if you don't allow some margin of error, it will paralyze people making decisions at all. Um, but the truth of the matter is we had horrendous mistakes made uh, during that time. For example, in the first six months of COVID, we had 10,000 people move from hospitals into nursing homes without even being tested for COVID. That had the effect of seeding COVID in nursing homes. And it, you know, COVID spread like wildfire uh, there and many people died as a result. So the nursing homes became the ground zero of the COVID crisis. The people who were most uh, vulnerable were left most exposed by the government. And um, we also had decisions by the government to cancel cancer services, mental health services, heart disease, uh, stroke services. That led to you know, delayed diagnosis, delayed treatment, and in many cases, delayed death or deaths. And you know, we're, seeing, we're living with that at the moment. And there's been, since COVID, there's been a big increase in the number of excess deaths. We have this really bizarre situation that there was the OECD tell, OECD tell us that there were no excess deaths during COVID, but now Ireland has a really high level of excess deaths. Um, we also see the schools were closed longer in Ireland than anywhere else uh, in Europe. Um, you know, the figures are going uh, through the roof in terms of the number of children who are being referred to Tusla uh, currently. 250 children are being referred to Tusla every single day, 10 children an hour. It's, it's, it's startling. And many reasons for that is because all those uh, children's support services were, were, were stopped by the government during COVID. Um, you know, Ireland was the only country in Europe to stop building homes for, the whole, you know, for that whole period. And he, Ireland is a country with the worst housing crisis, and people are dying on the streets at the moment because of homelessness. Um, you know, all of that needs to be properly investigated, and to do so, we need an independent, judge-led investigation with the powers to compel people or papers. So you said something important there at the very end that it needs to be independent. So this has to be outside of the government and they need to look at the decisions the government made during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so as, as the plan that's currently constituted by the government looks to allow for this evaluation to report directly to the Taoiseach uh, in the department of the Taoiseach that is happening. Um, and that's a, that's a mistake. You know, one of the big like, issues, and, and, and don't forget, like, these are difficult decisions but it wasn't that nobody was questioning them at the time. AIM2 was at the fore of you know, questioning these issues at the time, especially the, the closure of cancer services, because you know, more people die of cancer every year than COVID. And the idea that you would close one service down for you know, one, another illness just did not make sense. And one of the big issues at the time was the government handed over enormous power to NEFET. NEFET had extraordinary power. It was, in, in many ways, the government of the time it was making decisions, and you know, I, I remember as an elected representative of the people, I was learning of those decisions through the media. Never wasn't even brief, weren't even briefing the um, the elected representatives of this country. So we need to know how Nefert was constituted, 
what powers it had, etc. And what science did it depend upon? Did it have the necessary um, uh, inputs? I'm, I'm thinking of you know psychological and mental health inputs to be able to ascertain the cost of all of this. Because you know right now we have thousands of older people still across the country who are still in many ways cocooning, who are not engaging with life because they're still living in that fear that was created at the time around COVID. Um, so, you know, COVID, we need to make sure that if such a, an illness returns in the future, that we have studied the actions that we have undertaken, we work out and know the cost of each action so that the next time, if we're faced with this, we will be able to make better actions that will protect society, but also make sure that it doesn't create as much damage. So you've said that the you understand the reasoning behind the no blame approach that the government is planning to take with this um, evaluation to the pandemic. But based on the um, the issues that you've outlined and the mistakes that were made during the pandemic, is there an argument to be made that maybe there should be some blame assigned? Well, just in, in relation, I, I don't agree with the, the government's uh, proposed no blame approach, I'll, I'll be honest with you. And um, I think that, you know, this is a politically self-serving uh, policy by the government. So the government are facing a number of elections next year. The last thing that they want is actually a proper investigation into their actions during COVID because they'll feel obviously that will do damage to them. Um, and, you know, the word blame really, the, what the government means by that is they, want, they don't want accountability here. And accountability is important. So, you know, first of all, I would say have the investigation. Find out the truth. Find out if there is accountability uh, merited and where it is merited it should be apportioned. Um, and, and this is the key with Irish administration. Ireland is an accountability-free zone. And accountability is one of the most important elements that drives changes in behaviours. It's human nature to know that if you're never going to get pulled up for anything, that your behaviour slides at work, etc. But if you know that your work is going to be checked and, and you're going to be held to account for your work, chances are work will improve in terms of quality. And that's the same in government. And unfortunately, in this country, nobody is ever held to account. It is one of the key administration difficulties that we have in the HSE and elsewhere. Ain't you want to see a country where everybody is held to account in terms of public administration and government? And that would radically improve the delivery of services, the delivery of housing, infrastructure, uh, and uh, public services as well. So this idea that the government wants a no-blame approach that is a strategic effort by them to try and make sure that, they, that, that we don't have a transparent uh, investigation and that nobody is held to account in government. The pandemic was unprecedented in that our government, as well as governments around the world, were, were unsure of how to handle a pandemic of that size and how to handle a disease of the scale that COVID-19 came in. Would you agree that a key part of this um, evaluation should be looking at future-proofing um, threats that may come similar to the pandemic uh, down the line? Yeah, I, I do think it, it was unprecedented in modern times. And I do think that the investigation needs to take that in, into consideration and accept that there's going to be a margin of error in terms of decision making. There's, there's absolutely no, no doubt. So I'm not looking for a situation here where we're just going to, you know, uh, pillory people uh, for, for, um, for the sake of it. Um, but, you know, Ireland was an outlier in terms of the decisions that we made around COVID. Very few countries went to the severity uh, in relation uh, to Ireland. Remember, you know, we had situations where the riot police 
were being uh, marshalled on streets against uh, young people, 21, 22, 23. We had situations where the government introduced a vaccine pass, which basically reduced the civil rights of citizens in this country. And that vaccine pass wasn't based on any science. In actual fact, whether you've, you had uh, the vaccine pass or not, you were still as likely to transmit uh, COVID to other people. So we had a whole section of society who had their civil rights taken off them. And, you know, and one of the problems in, in Irish society is that we do live in a very, <clears throat> a very homogeneous society. There is, a, let's say, a lot of groupthink in Ireland. And when people try to push back on a decision by the government, you know, they're, they're often pilloried. And, you know, um, uh, uh, people with different views, dissent is prevented. In a functioning democracy, you need to allow for the competition of ideas because it's only when ideas compete with each other that you can get to the best decision that's necessary to fix the issue. And when one side is prevented from actually having a discussion at all around this, you can't get to the best decision. And that's an, another difficulty that occurred in Ireland, that during the COVID crisis, the group think that's a problem in this country anyways became far more um, concentrated uh, and far more powerful. Uh, and we need to look at that to make sure we don't repeat it in the future. And that's into TD Padder Tobin. Do you agree? Are we likely to get answers if it's perhaps a little bit more prosecuting in how it's approached? Or ultimately, is it water under the bridge and it's all about learning a lesson so that the next time better decisions are made? By the way, lots of comments in response to our interview earlier with Marion Harkin, the independent TD who mentioned Ashling Murphy in the context of a debate on immigration this week in the Dáil, and she has apologised to uh, Ray Murphy for doing so. I'll get to your comments in a few minutes' time. Also, that letter from the girlfriend of a very, very stingy man who didn't even buy her a Valentine's present. If it was up to you, the vast majority of people who have contacted the programme today, you'd have been gone long ago. But she still, still seems, for whatever reason, to hang around. And if you're training for your next job, you might soon be doing it virtually, thanks to a company based in Athlone. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner with the stories beyond the headlines. Midlands 103 In the future, when you train, you might soon be putting on a pair of uh, VR headsets and in an immersive world, learning how to do the job. And the technology is being developed by Mercus Technologies, which recently won a European Technology Award for its VR-based training. And it was founded by Jeff Allen, who is the chief executive, and Dermot Condren, head of development, who was once of the Midlands 103 parish many years ago. Good morning. Good morning, Will. So a quick, a quick snapshot of the company, uh, how long you've been in business, how you've grown. Okay, so we started this business in after leaving college in 2013. So we've been... Uh, Trying at it since we've kind of started in a one-stop shop for businesses and online business, making mobile websites which nobody was buying back then, and then we've progressed now 
through to being a, a software company that develops immersive VR experiences for enterprise. And how many people are working for you now? Well, all in all, there's about 20 to have around the office. And uh, just now, this week, we have an induction for 10 students all of doing college work placements that will come in. That'll be productive now over the next Q1 in this year. And many of them stay on as far as September when they return to college. So this light bulb moment to develop a package for virtual reality training, how did that come about? Yeah, um, I, I suppose, as Jeff said, like where we came from was doing websites. We'd done video and animation and we always kind of knew like the, the animated elements was where we kind of wanted to delve into more. Uh, we were kind of always trying to do stuff that was a little bit different. Um, so how we produced the, the 3D animations, we used a game engine called Unity. And probably around 2016, 2017, we started seeing augmented reality and virtual reality starting to come to the fore. Um, and you saw these lovely demos um, of VR, you put on a headset and it's mm. this immersive kind of idea and stuff. And it's kind of when you go onto LinkedIn and you see all these different kind of um, case studies and proof of concepts. But we kind of wanted to find something that would bring value to customers because we had always had like an enterprise business kind of focus so what could yeah, so we your customers aren't gamers and exactly, VR yeah. has been very heavily looking at gaming so we always wanted to look at something that would give them a return on investment and obviously a reason for us to be you know uh, so we saw training as being a big big element of that and we started developing the product from there and essentially we've developed Avatar Academy the platform uh, from all the client work that we've done over the years. So we've slowly evolved it um, from working with a large um, company in Sweden, Camphill, that do um, air filtration. We did a big kind of VR experience for them. But we did a VR training experience for NIBRIT, so the National Institute of Bio uh, Training um, up in Dublin. And that from that project, we thought, this is kind of our sweet spot now. Mm. Uh, we've done the VR experiences, but now we're seeing this training. If we can dis- give this value back to the customers. Uh, and essentially what we started to invest in is creating a software team that could start to capture analytics based on the training. So we're able to show now today trainers how their trainees are doing in VR. And that allows them to really understand, are these uh, trainees ready to go on to the real life um, scenarios. Let me play devil's advocate. Why use virtual reality instead of the hands-on training that traditionally people are used to? It's a huge advantage in the number one uh, monitor or element in business is money. Okay, so training is expensive, especially when you have to team up. Effectively, we're humans, we learn by watching. Mm. So if you have to put somebody in to watch, there's two people effectively doing the job. So uh, by taking that virtual, somebody can learn at their own pace. They can learn in the virtual. They're not going to... The number one box that virtual reality ticks is anxiety, where a lot of us are anxious, and especially when we're working around very expensive equipment. You know, you go in and you're on a machine that's costing 300, 400,000 for the first few days, you're as nervous as a kitten. So uh, 
it dispenses with that because people can get comfortable. They can understand the lexicon around the, the, the tools and all this sort of stuff. And we target the life science industry, which is a huge uh, industry here in Ireland. It's 20% of our economy in terms of product. And uh, to get somebody into a clean room to train is an expense. Like they have to gown up and gown down and stuff like this. So uh, it's removing all that cost first and foremost. And if you can capture, there's a huge movement towards Industry 4.0 and now significantly into Industry 5.0. You'll have to explain that. Yeah, yeah, 4.0 is is the digitization of manufacturing essentially. Well, 5.0 is the digitization of manufacturing including the human element. And there's a lot of uh, legislation around this. There's a new directive from the EU that we have to record all the training for all our employees, for everybody. It's only affecting uh, companies with 750 plus, but you can be full sure that's trickling down. So taking things virtually allows people to get trained, make mistakes and learn and learn and learn just by rinse and repeat. And Dermot's software is able to capture that and from the data that you can read, uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a 10,000 hour rule that if you practice, I think you get expert after 10,000. Well, in the virtual, pretty much the data that's been accumulated so far can show if you put a human into a scenario and they do things between 50 and 90 times, they'll learn it. So. So using your imagination, how many sectors could this be deployed to? And are there sectors that perhaps would be more challenging than others when it comes to using VR training? Well, I think the whole thing around it is um, where it really has the greatest advantage is it's for active learning. So if you look at kind of um, how training is currently or has been in the past, we look at e-learning and a lot of that is very passive. It's uh, presentations and a lot of it's kind of dead by PowerPoint. Um, (laughs) We had one company that for their induction, they would put people through a three-hour PowerPoint and they were wondering why they had such a high turnover of staff leaving after the first week. It's because they didn't really kind of care about the staff. They were just mm. go into that room, have a look at the video uh, and go from there. But in terms of um, applying it to industries, um, definitely we find it works really well in the likes of a clean room or a manufacturing space where you have to physically do um, some type of operation um, and the hand movements and stuff like mm. that. It can be used for soft skills too um, and there's plenty of case studies out there but we find a lot of the more practical uh, use cases uh, really takes advantage of uh, the whole idea around uh, being immersed in an environment because you're retaining that information a little bit more if you're practically doing it. Mm. So a lot of manual tasks but perhaps as it progresses and as AI is integrated could you foresee the way people have... um, demonstration calls and in sales there then monitor how did you get on in your call or in uh, front of house situations difficult customer comes in could you see staff having to interact with uh, an AI avatar to how how to do the uh, interpersonal stuff better the real challenge for that part is that the expectations of the marketplace in terms of visuals there's a thing called the uncanny valley. So if we're dealing with avatars, it's not quite what people expect and people have a very high standard. 
Uh, The biggest VR company in the world is actually a soft skills training, but they use advanced photography uh, more than a animation product. And and the reason for that is if you use what they call 360 VR, you can't put in the hard surface and interact with the surfaces. So that's key. And it's a lot more expensive, the animated version. The other is photography. And yes, I think uh, there's a huge market there for the soft skills VR, but unfortunately we don't have the bandwidth to to cover that mm. but uh, i'd be surprised if we don't see more emerging people into that space in the not too distant future yeah, the manufacturing sectors anyway offer plenty of opportunity for you how do you scale this so that you get into more boardrooms for consideration well in terms of scaling and to get the decision makers that's be my job but the scalability the platform is infinite the software that uh, the guys are creating and uh, makes it very simple because our platform actually reduces the, bar- the the demand and knowledge so you don't need software engineers it's 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 making it into a drag and drop scenario that more people and we're actually looking to empower these corporations to build it themselves and that's well underway we've been using it for the last year internally and actually in this annual reviews that we had there a few weeks ago People are saying, this is too easy. We're software engineers. So uh, that's that's the technical side of it. The mindset needs to change. What this actually is, is uh, the next generation of media. That's all it is. It's the next phase or rollout of the internet. And instead of two dimensions, it's now three dimensions. And, and the world and education fraternity aren't ready to embrace that and... and there's going to be huge demands mm. and it'll be very similar to my own history. I moved to the States in the 1990s when the internet arrived. There's an awful lot of parallels between then and now, you know. So the scalability will uh, come when the demand increases. We have a lot of inbound inquiries now from the US. Germany would be adopting this technology way ahead of here. Unfortunately, at a national level, it's not been em- embraced as aggressively as it needs to because... Is there a concern that it'll displace existing jobs within education and training? Is there resistance from the industry? Absolutely, but the truth is that'll happen anyway. You know, it's like electrification, etc., etc. Like, But the human element is going to actually become more important and it'll free up humans any amount of automation. And this is the the misnomer around, uh, it's back to the industrial, the Luddites, you know, if you go back to when steam came Mm. upon in England in the first industrial revolution. So uh, people need to, and it's like all fear is if you let go and look at it through a different lens and reposition it and reframe it. uh, I think uh, by not engaging we're losing out market share. It's a place from our own experience at Mercer's and animation background, Ireland excel at the creativity and that's needed in the software and the visual element of it. Like we've a great indigenous animation uh, industry. And I think we should double down on that because the risk is that we're in the land grab VR right now. And, our platform can dominate the life science and beyond. There's no limit to the spectrum of industries that this can be used to train in, you know. And uh, if you look at the next generation, 
uh, I go home, run out of time and read a book. But my colleague Dermot tends to jump on the PlayStation. And even if you take the next generation, uh, how many of us don't have kids who live in Roblox? <laughs> That's a dirty word. That is a dirty uh, word. Yeah. Well, for example, we did a project for for uh, back in the day for Mastercard during COVID, and they came back to us later and asked us if we'd build out a banking scenario in Roblox. Now that means they're thinking down the road and mm-hmm. they're thinking what mm-hmm. when your seven or eight year old is going to be going into the bank. And that's the way it is. Like we see new banking systems like Revolut permeates. I often wonder, do the people in our own banks who are using older technologies as that great have Revolut in their back pocket? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the example. So I, I think education, no more than artificial intelligence, needs to find a solution rather than fold their arms and go no. Yeah, I'm reminded of a conversation only an hour ago with Martin Horan, who's a career coach in Moat, and he was describing the difference between people who feel they're lucky and people who feel they're unlucky. And those who feel they're lucky inherently look around to see where's the opportunity. And that perhaps is the missing piece. Those who feel threatened by virtual reality need that spark of an idea how can I use this to my advantage? Well, it, it comes to, it comes down to every cliche about there's two types of people. And the truth is that's positivity versus negativity, you know, and, and it depends on our own psyche, where we came from and stuff like that. But the positivity is right. You know, I'm personally cursed with this thing that everything I see something, the little spark goes up and what could I do with that? And and, and that's... That's, that's not a curse. <laughs> well, it's, it, it is imagination and... and one of the challenges that I face in my everyday job as business development is is there's a, an awful lot of people who just don't have the confidence in their imagination. I won't say lack imagination, you know, because you need to be able to map out. Uh, what I do is when I meet the customer, they say, can we do X, Y, and Z? And I go uh, scribble it down in a cigarette packet and then run back to Dermot. And Dermot says, yes, yes, uh, you're dreaming, Jeff, kind of. Mm-hmm. So Dermot makes things that I come back and and it's often, we always say our first engagement is brilliant because there's t- steep learning curves. We have to understand the subject matter expertise, but then they got to learn how we make it because it's highly complex, you know, and that's where I think we work best as a team. I kind of do the three-card Monty and this is this what you want, and then Dermot actually delivers and puts that together. So It's a fantastic story. And it sounds like you're only going to go from success to success. Congratulations on the award. Congratulations on the tech. And I'm no doubt we'll be hearing a lot more about Mercer's technologies and VR into the future. Jeff and Dermot, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Will. It's time for the latest Community Diary with Tommy Solicitors at Loan, one of the largest, longest established and most respected firms of solicitors in the Midlands. Little Hill Animal Rescue and Sanctuary are holding hen rescue runs at various locations this weekend, as well as the 3rd of February. For a full list, go online to Little Hill Animal Rescue and Sanctuary on Facebook. Adoption fees apply and you can check out the Department of Agriculture website for current regulations. Dunkerran Church of Ireland Tractor Run will be held Sunday the 28th of January, registering at 12 noon in the Dunkerran Arms Car Park. 
refreshments and a raffle will be held in the Duncarran Community Centre and a donation from funds raised will be given to the Duncarran National School Autism Unit. Sweets in Kilbegan are hosting a nine-week women's development programme and it is free of charge. It runs three hours a week until Thursday the 21st of March and it is free to women over 35 living in Westmeath. Key topics include personal development, goal setting, digital skills and interview techniques. Call Sweets 057 93 32030 for details. And creative writing workshops for children will be held on Sundays from the 4th of February onwards for six weeks between 2 and 4pm for children aged 8 to 12 years. And the venue is 4 Bastion Street, Athlone. The price, €90. Contact Niamh on 086 362 3971 or check out on Facebook Creative Writing for Children, Athlone. Now, if you want to check those details again, they're all listed in the community diary of midlands103.com. If I missed something happening in your area, call 0818 300 103 and give out like stink. The Community Diary, with thanks to Tormy Solicitors, experienced in the areas of law that affect people on a day-to-day basis. Tormies.ie Here with the news and views that you can use. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Midlands 103 So, earlier I called out a letter to one of the newspapers this morning. And sometimes I always wonder if these people are real. You know, how can they not see the obvious in front of them? But hey, what it says is this girl is going out with this guy and he happens to be a bit of a Scrooge. For instance, he did not buy her a single present for Valentine's Day last year. And she lavished him with gifts by contrast. What's bringing it to a head is that he apparently has plenty of money, just as much to spend it, and she wants a holiday, and he wants, therefore, to go to the cheapest, uh, dullest, dirtiest place possible on the Costa del Sol. And she doesn't feel she's going to enjoy that kind of a holiday. Just wondering why she's with him at all. Maraid Lockman is from Love HQ in Mullingar. Morning, Maraid. Good morning, Will. Would you stick around? Uh, well, I'd have to have a big conversation first, you know. There's no point in just drawing a line to, under a relationship. But one thing I did, like when I was reading this notice, is that she's saying that she's considering breaking up with him. And I would always say, if you're kind of going down that line of, I, should I break up with them? Should I not break up with them over something you know, that is obviously quite important to you. I think the first thing you should do is have a conversation with them. People are not psychic. So being very clear, like obviously there have, you know, other things seem to be going well for them, but maybe their love languages are different. Maybe, you know, they may have grown up in a house where kids were not something that's important. What's this business love language? What does that mean? Love language, there's five love languages. Gary Chapman wrote a book about them and there's things like... um, Words of um, words of affirmation, so giving compliments and you know saying thank you for doing this and appreciating people. Other people like gifts. Um, other things then are let me think off the top of my head here. Um, gifts. Uh, let me think. Some I'm people like touch. Anyway, I, yeah, I, I think I yeah, remember. Yeah, oh, that's it. Yeah, touch. That's it. Another one as well. 
So what I would say is, you know, there's difference in love languages and how people show love is very often how they like to receive love. So she obviously likes gifts because she gives gifts. But not all people appreciate that. As well, yeah, from her, his point of view, he's know, probably thinking, so she's blowing the bank and therefore he has to blow the bank in return and cumulatively that doubles their losses. Yes, absolutely. So I think she should have a conversation with them and say, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up this year and I was really disappointed last year that I didn't get something. Even a token of your love, like to just forget about it, like it's a day for celebrating love. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's a whole mark holiday. It's my busiest day of the year of the year as you can imagine as a matchmaker but you know it is one of those things that you have to know how your your person likes to receive love you know like things like um this week or the last few weeks going to work when I go out to my car in the morning my partner has defrosted my windscreen and it's a small gesture of love but guess what I greatly receive like greatly appreciate it but like that if I'm in making teas and coffees and breakfast in the morning you know I'll stick his coffee into a travel mug as well and like so we we do nice things hmm. for each other and like can i ask is, by the way what's what is the relationship my lovely man yes jason so jason is now going to be placed on a dartboard by every other man in the midlands <laughs> well actually, because the expectation so. from our other halves shall now be that we will go out and defrost the car on cold mornings thank you jason <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? The other thing is, I would do it for him if I knew he was under pressure that morning and was running around the house. So that's the thing. If you bring love to your relationship, you'll also receive it. If you also appreciate it, like sometimes there's a lot of people out there that are doing that every morning for their partner and never get as much as a thank you. So what I would say is, we're, like what we're talking about here is the financial side of things. And this lady is saying that he's very tight with money. She has said as well that, you know, he's not short of a few bob. Mm. How does she really know that? They're not married. She doesn't know. Maybe he hasn't disclosed with her that he has other outgoing. Maybe he, ah, you know, look, 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 look hang on, hang on, hang on. They're not married, but they're clearly <laughs> going out for yes. a, a, about a year. We can infer probably more uh, since last mm-hmm. Valentine's Day. So she would have yeah. an idea whether he's pulling in coin or not. And yeah, I just I wonder, at what point do they become fundamentally incompatible because you can have the conversation about Valentine's Day and indeed a healthy conversation might also Mm -hmm. uh, be with him asking her to tone it down a little bit. Yeah, we'll get gifts. Let's not go overboard. But there's a pattern here. He's perfectly willing to go out for fancy meals and weekend breaks if she's paying. And Mm -hmm. if they're going on holiday, he's going to do it, but only on a shoestring. So... It sounds like Look, they have very fundamentally different attitudes to money. What I would say is we get all these little signs at the beginning when we start dating. Sometimes if people have been single for a while or lonely before they start dating, they ignore these red flags. Now, that's OK for the first week or two, but you have to listen to them and you should not be collecting all these red flags. She knew this time last year that there was an issue with money. OK, so there has to be accountability on both sides here. And that's really when you should have the conversation. Anything that comes up in your relationship that makes you go, that doesn't make me feel nice. Try and say it immediately or try and have the conversation. But to feel unappreciated, and this is part of it, um, to feel not special enough that they would spend the money. You know, if you were spending your money on them, you don't feel as special because they're not, you know, making, buying you nice gifts or making you feel special. So I think straight off, she just needs to sit down. And this is anybody that's having an issue in their relationship. I have a podcast with Stephanie Regan. She's a clinical psychotherapist. And we actually have a podcast on how to have conversations about difficult topics. 
uh, called Tough Love Podcast, but like actually sitting down and having a conversation with them saying, look, um, there's just something I want to discuss. I find at the moment that, you know, are you short of money? Asking them straight out, are you short of money? Because it seems at the moment that you are being quite tight. And like, I actually go as far as saying, I don't like meanness in somebody. If you want to go that far and saying, uh, you didn't get, there was, like, there was no um, Valentine's presents last year and I would expect that there will be this year. I don't like to go to those sorts of places on holidays. I work very hard and therefore when I like to go somewhere, I do like my my holiday to be as nice as my home, if not slightly nicer for the week that I'm away. Um, and therefore, you know, what is your budget for holidays? Yeah, I tend to agree with and you. I, I, don't, I don't think there's point tiptoeing around it. And as you said, no. she probably should have dealt with this nearly a year ago. But mm-hmm. she is where she is, and I have a feeling she'll be at Love HQ before long. Maraid Lockman, okay. thank you very much Everyone's for your time. <laughs> Thanks a million, Will. Maraid is based in Mullingar. Love the Midlands? Love. Oh boy. How would you feel about getting into a perfectly good plane and jumping out thousands of feet above the ground? Well, you're never too old to try and Mary MacDonald is going to venture to Clombalogue to the Irish Parachute Club in tandem with her son Michael and take the leap of faith. Mary and Michael are with us now. Good morning, guys. Morning, Will. Good morning. Mary, Good morning, Will. have you taken your temperature lately? <laughs> no, nor have I taken my blood pressure. So I'm hoping that's staying fairly normal. Who talked you into this? Uh, the man sitting opposite me, my son, Michael. Now, Michael, now, I, I, think, yeah. I think you owe us an explanation. <laughs> I'm turning out to be the villain in this whole situation and uh, all I'm trying to do is something good. Well, I'm just wondering, did she take out a life insurance policy? <laughs> uh, maybe she might want to do it in the next fortnight or so. But, um, Are you hoping to know. inherit a, a vast fortune? <laughs> <laughs> well, someone actually mentioned um, the Baz Masrawi show of 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy, so... Uh, some might say I've already been trying to kill her with kindness for the, all my ah. life, but she's the number two on the list now, anyway. Ah, so you're a good son, really. <laughs> I'm, I'm only slagging. What's the story? What's the background? Uh, well, sure, look, at we're, we're, it's all about fundraising for um, for two funds that we picked out for Gaza. Um, there's a medical aid for Palestine is one of the funds we're raising money for, and Palestine... Children Relief Fund is the other one. So that's the motivation behind it, really. Right. Why not have a cake sale? (laughs) (laughs) Is it too late to change? (laughs) So how did you react, Mary, when he proposed the idea of a skydive? Well, I'd have to say very slowly, because I had to first went into shock, uh, trying to visualise what he was asking me to do. And then, look, I just gave a little bit of time thinking about it. And I thought about what's going on in Gaza. And I said, mm. OK, let's go with it. Mm. So that was it. Got said to Mike, yeah, let's, let's do the skydive. We had other ideas. They were thinking of other things they might do. But look, this was maybe a little bit different. So, yeah, I'm still shaking a little bit internally, wondering, did I do the right thing? But when I think of what's going on, 
out in Gaza and people going to bed at night, men, women and children, not knowing where they wake up in the yeah, morning. Yeah. I shouldn't be worried about going up in, in, in a relatively safe plane and, uh, and, and, and leaving the plane. And let so, me assure you, I know the people in the Irish Parachute Club in Clonbalogue. They're a great crew. They will look after you. You'll feel exhilarated. Uh, you know, when it's over, <laughs> you'll feel probably a little bit nervous at the time. Um, but I'm reading a quote from you, Mike, and you say that Mam is a bit of a daredevil. Is there a history here? Well, not relative to jumping out of a plane now, but um, yeah, well, she, she told a story yesterday about uh, when she was on holidays in Spain and she got up on a diving board and jumped into a pool under pressure from us. I think that's the most daredevilish thing she's done so far. So, yeah, a different scale altogether. I was about now. to say, the diving board wasn't 10,000 feet, was it? <laughs> no. no, no, no. I'm concentrating on, on you, Mary, but actually perhaps it's Mike who might be a little bit fearful. I haven't asked you what your feelings are, Mike, and how brave you're, you're feeling. Nobody's asking me about my feelings, Will. It's all about the 75-year-old granny, and, and I've forgotten about the whole thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, world's smallest violin, but go on. <laughs> yeah, no, look, at I, I, I don't think I'm overly worried. My biggest concern on the day now is that there'll be a whole heap of cows calving while I'm up in the sky jumping out of the plane. But uh, not overly concerned about the jump uh, as of yet, anyway. But again, there's just we're kind of keeping it in the back of our minds and, and thinking of the reason why we're doing it. So just getting us through it. Well, I will on the day uh, get out onto the roof and put a bullseye, and we'll <laughs> uh, we'll have maybe some uh, cakes in the back garden, and and maybe a stiff drink beforehand might help too. <laughs> All welcome, yes. Yeah, All yeah. welcome, a few Xanax. But it is for a great cause, as you said, and anybody yeah. wishing to support you, what's the best way to do so, guys? Yeah, well, sure, look, we have our GoFundMe page set up. Um, uh, look, it's actually in a, quite a few newspapers now at this stage. And, uh, yeah, if you're going to GoFundMe and just search for uh, Parachute Jump for Gaza or for Mary MacDonald, uh, Parachute Jump, it's easy enough found. So, yeah, that's, that's where we're doing the fundraising from. So, yeah. And have you decided which of you is going to jump first? Well, um, I definitely put my name forward to go first because I do think if I'm still on the plane and my son has, has gone ahead of me, I could balk. <laughs> I could pull out at that stage and refuse, refuse to leave. So, no, I am going to go first. I'll give her the push. Oh, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> She'll be on the ground waiting for you, remember? She, she could find a pitchfork. Yeah, she's shaking the fist when I get down and I know if I go the opposite direction. You could have a very yeah. sore landing. I wish you the best. It is happening on Sunday, February 11th. May the weather gods be on your side and we look okay. forward to hearing of a huge success on GoFundMe. Mary and Mike yeah. MacDonald, thank you both very much for your time. I just said one, would you mind very much if I just said one more thing? Of course. We We've been overwhelmed with the support that we're getting. Unbelievable donations coming in. So can I take this opportunity through your radio channel to thank everybody? We will down the road be thanking everybody, but to thank everybody's support and any more ongoing support will be 
greatly appreciate it. Fair play. So thanks for the opportunity to say that. Thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of the day, guys. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you Will. so much. Now, still on the agenda today, Friday panel takes you through stories you may have missed over the last seven days. And there has been a lot in the area of immigration. We talked about it earlier. And here are some of the comments from Mike. People are afraid of asylum seekers, but they're afraid of large groups of young males. And your guest admitted both in the Dáil and on air that there is zero evidence these people pose any real danger. It's akin to being afraid of vampires or werewolves. I'm afraid of sharks, but there's pretty much zero risk of being eaten by one in Ireland. The fear might be high, but that doesn't mean there's anything to be afraid of, says Mike. And he would also challenge if there's no evidence, as she said, what's her problem? Her problem, which she probably expanded on more in the doll, is the fear of men congregating in areas uh, in large numbers that tends to make women or anybody who feels vulnerable uncomfortable and country of origin doesn't come into it. But that's what she would say. You may disagree and clearly you do, Mike. John says, when we look at England, take Leicester, for instance, where the native white people have been outnumbered is that what we want in Ireland, to lose our sense of identity? Locals are worried that politicians have deserted us. Is it losing sense of identity or is it identity changing? Also, on the lighter side of the news and the Scrooge letter, the man who will not take his other half to a decent hotel for holidays, Will is defrosting the car window better than buying stupid, expensive flowers, which after two days end up in the wheelie bin, says PJ. There is a huge amount of uh, merit in what you say, PJ. It's the thought that counts very often. And if you're just buying presents for the sake of it, how meaningful are those presents? It's the small gesture that can be worth an absolute fortune. And for everything else, there's MasterCards, isn't that what they say? Well, how do we support the skydiving granny? Search for Mary MacDonnell on GoFundMe. They're already north of, I believe, €9,000. And they're fundraising for Gaza. Two final comments on the love letter from Paul. Valentine's is just another day of the year. It happens to be my friend's birthday and I have always been good at giving presents on that day. And one more. Will, it just sounds like the two people are wrong for each other. But they also have no idea what love is about and therefore they have to be open to each other. If it's a relationship based on money, one wanting more and the other wanting to spend less, that will never work. In order to love somebody you should have no expectations towards each other. Is that person right or is there maybe a little idealism in it? Anyway, all a bit of fun on a Friday morning and to continue the conversation, the serious and the not-so-serious side of the news, let's meet our Friday panel 
after these. The Friday panel on Midlands Today with Comfort Keepers. Uplifting home care throughout the Midlands and nationwide. Comfortkeepers.ie Let's meet our Friday panel. We have John Shields, who is Chief Executive of whatsfordinner.ie and uh, not a lover of Valentine's Day. Um, did I say that? <laughs> you said you didn't want me to I'm ask you that. So I thought the first question should therefore be about Valentine's Day. We'll move on with the introductions, though, just to give him a moment. Margaret Gweech Lawler is here as well. She's HR Manager and Director at SEEC, which stands for? Shandari Elevator Escalator Consultants. And you're based in Port Arlington. We are. In County Leash or County Offaly? Offaly. Oh. Yes, is that the good side or the bad side? Well, I live there, but I'm a leash woman. So there you go. So it's compromise, it's balance. Excellent. Good she, side. She used to consider politics, so therefore she gave <laughs> that very diplomatic answer where she didn't really address the question. Robbie yeah. Donnelly is here as well. He's branch administrator with Down Syndrome Ireland. I am. And I believe chairperson of Offaly Down Syndrome? No, 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 no longer. Handed over down, the reins? Handed over the reins uh, to uh, Anne Crombie, who is a very, very good chairperson for Offaly Down Syndrome. But I'm, I do all the running of the, for, of the branch for Down Syndrome Island for Offaly. And if that voice sounds familiar, Robbie was once of the Midlands 103 parish. Two and seven, twenty-seven. Do you remember those oh, days? Oh, well, the bingo. Remember those days, bingo. Oh. The radio bingo. <laughs> Well, Valentine's Day. Mm. What got us talking about this was the letter earlier to the Irish Independent, which we picked up on and a lot of listeners got wound up about. This gentleman, inverted commas, who bought his lady no present whatsoever last year for Valentine's. She lavished him with gifts. He seems to be a bit of a Scrooge. He just wants to go to a slum, basically, for holidays and not actually splash out on anything decent. But she can spend on meals for him if she fancies. And, uh, Margaret, you were not very enthusiastic about Valentine's yourself. Well, no. I mean, if my husband came back, came home with me with flowers, I'd be very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not the way we are. And it's just what you're, you're, the lady that was on your panel that was talking about, mm. she actually explained it extremely well. You know, it's whatever your, 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 your relationship, uh, you know, there's the balance between, you know, the two, the, the things that you do for each other. And that's the wonderful thing. Flowers is You're, just you're saying with a little me. less conviction no, now no, that you're alive. No, no, seriously, live. but I personally think that whole Valentine's thing, like we were talking about that earlier, was when I met my husband, it didn't exist in Holland. That was back in the, ni- in the late 80s. Mm. So it's a complete commercial thing. You know, it'd be, I think like most women or men would prefer a kindness through the year. But my, my motto is through life is when you have zero expectations, anything is special. <laughs> when you're not, when you don't expect it, really, you know, when you, when you leave yourself vulnerable, when you have high expectations. Yes, in life, um, with everything. I agree on high expectations. Yes. yes. However, if you are making an effort and the other party in your life is not, are you not going to get browned off eventually, John? But are you making the effort because you love that person or why then you expecting the same back? So that's where you make your mistake. John? If I didn't arrive at home on the 14th with flowers, chocolates and one other gift, I wouldn't be in the same house on the 15th. Sorry. I'm 20 years married, so I think I've got it right at this stage. That's brilliant. I love that. 
facts. Like, and will she <laughs> equally treat you? Uh, yeah, but I don't get flowers and I don't get chocolate, Will. I suspect you don't want the flowers. Uh, will you get a nice slap-up meal? Yeah, we'd do a meal. Now, we, would, we wouldn't go out on the 14th as a point of principle You're because right. um, I'm not into... Uh, overly busy places uh, uh, and leave that to young love that's, that's who needs to be filled the restaurants on those days not but I'd certainly go out uh, maybe on the 10th or the 18th uh, to have something a bit more relaxed sure. and spend a bit more time in the restaurant yes. and you know a bit more of a chilled vibe than being kind of rushed in and out because they, they need to do what they need to do to make money that's ok so you don't believe in being ripped off you do believe in Valentine's Day I don't not believe in expressing you know, a bit of love on, on one particular day of the year over another day. Okay. Certainly not. So we've a divided panel so far. Move it I think it can, no, 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 no. I want to see if Robbie... <laughs> don't be don't saying move it on. <laughs> You're going to Give the man a chance. 15 minutes talking about... Do you about know what, though? I think it, it is very commercialised, but I think it can go the other way as well. I was actually in a uh, high street discount store that's countrywide uh, yesterday, believe it or not, and they do all the little Valentine's gifts and everything, and they hmm. actually have engagement rings now that you can buy for €1.50. Really? Now, and, and, were... and, and did you get a good deal? <laughs> I, I, I picked up three or four. No. But if you, were, if you had gone to, to Mrs Faulkner many years ago, before she was Mrs Faulkner, with an engagement ring that cost you the same price as a can of Diet Coke, would you be with her now? I don't think you would. <laughs> Well, Mrs. I mean? Shields I never got an engagement ring, so... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually put off getting engaged so I could buy a car. Yes, and choice. I didn't get an engagement ring because I needed a washing machine and a dryer. Really? Yes. Wow. It's about five years ago I got my engagement ring, yes. Yeah, I think that happens. Yeah. Excellent! So finally, after so many years, back up. Because I have been pilloried and ridiculed for... Yeah, but was it, was it a little sports car now, Will? I mean, really, if it was a little sports car, if it was a family car that would do the family, mine was a washing machine and a dryer, we both needed it. So was it a sports car? Like you, like you said, time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Minimum wage increasing, and also auto-enrolment pension, and various other pressures coming on small businesses. And we heard uh, earlier this week from... Uh, one business person uh, in the Midlands who is of the view there will be mass closures in the hospitality industry. Now, you're in the food business, John. Yeah. Is it really as bad as they say it is? I think it's potentially worse, Will, to to be honest. Um, I think there's a factor of so many things happening at the moment um, that is, it's just causing such a knock-on effect to to people trying to stay in business and many, many people at the moment are on the verge of it's not worth it, we need to close the doors and I have owned and operated uh, restaurants over the last number of years and that I, I don't have that restaurant any longer so I called time on that restaurant sometime last year um, so I've been through the the, mm -hmm. the, the whole scenario mm -hmm. myself So, And what brought you to that decision? Increased costs will. Um, the so it wasn't necessarily declining demand? I'm just figuring that if prices for food have gone up, dining out is more expensive. Surely some people are saying to hell, I'll stay home. I think if you are a master of what you do at the moment in terms of the food industry, I think you'll survive. I think they're very good and popular places. Um, 
are surviving based on the fact that they're getting the volume that's required. I think if you're any average or below, you're going to find it very, very difficult to, to keep the door open. Um, you have so you have many to, factors working against you. Yeah, sure. And you have yeah. to be different. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you have to appeal to um, the mass market. Yeah. You see uh, over the last number of years, there's many vegan places, healthy food places that are really struggling because obviously they appeal to a niche market and with the population in our towns and cities not being the highest yeah. in the first place, the, the number of people coming through their front doors is, is getting smaller and smaller and the, like the margins on food. The, the business model of a restaurant now is very different to the business yeah. model of a restaurant you know, up until, say, five years ago yeah. in terms of you, the metrics mm. of your costs, etc. So pre-COVID... Was it the cost base lower? Was that the sole difference? Or was there a change in how people enjoyed a night in versus a night out? No, I think people are still venturing out. Um, in fact, I think people now are more inclined to want to go to a meal than go to a pub. Um, I think people now are more inclined to sit in a coffee shop for two or three hours, spend more than they may have done 10 years ago, rather than being a pu- in a pub in the day. Mm. So I think eateries... Uh, as I say, if you're a popular and you have something unique, you, I, I think you're going to do well. Um, or location. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But the, the there's only so much the average punter will pay for a certain product. And if that product's not at the top end in terms of what they want, they won't pay. And your margin, if they won't pay high-end price, your margin... Because they can't afford it, mm. uh, your margin's not there any longer. Because it's going, it's going to pay for the food. It's going to uh, increase labour costs. Now, I don't believe in in. I bet recently, have came out and said there needs to be a a, a stall on um, minimum wage going up. Personally, I don't agree with that. I think that you have to pay people what they're worth, not what the state determines mm-hmm. uh, what a rate should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in business myself, mm. and I have a weekly uh, overhead of thousands in terms of labour costs. Um, but generally, when you hire folk, um, if you pay people a minimum wage as determined by, by your government, you will get a very average return on productivity. Mm-hmm. If you pay people... What they're worth, um, I know this through 25 years of experience, you will get uh, a big swing in in an upward trajectory of the productivity. I suppose the challenge is those who are on higher than minimum wage expect a premium for whatever their experience or their seniority, their responsibility. And when the gap between that premium and minimum wage is closed, in this case by 12%, they will turn around to the boss and they will ask to widen that gap. The boss might be able to afford 12% for everybody. Whatever about those on the bottom. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's I've where ex- Danny McCoy of IBEC was coming from, yeah, to just yeah. pause it because there's going to be wage inflation. Yeah, and I've experienced the, the same conversations with my own staff over the, the last number of years in terms of people who are, are earning somewhat more than the minimum wage. Are we getting an increase hmm. pro rata to, to what the people at the bottom now... I don't have people in my business that are employed directly by me. I'm minimum wage. 
So thankfully, when people come to me, it's not such an awkward conversation. Uh, I believe in paying a fair wage to people and making sure you have the right people in uh, and rewarding them mm. correctly. Margaret, you're in a very different business yeah, and it's a very specialist it, it, area. So but it affects us as well. I yeah. mean, like, you have to consider if you look at your employees as a cost, then you're going to be concerned about this. If you look at your employees as an asset, then it's not going to be an issue because you're not going to be able to do your, your work without them. Um, the whole issue about that, that the, const- the minimum wage is, uh, you know, it shouldn't be a situation that because you're raising the minimum wage that straight away people are going to be looking for higher wages. I, 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 don't, see, I don't see the link. If you're if you're getting the, the 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 annual inflationary increases, if you like, that would be something that we would always have, you know, in 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 our company, and and you know, obviously, your your every company is different how they organise their increases and that sort of thing. But uh, I it, I imagine if you have a product that you're selling, that you're competing in the European market, yes, it's challenging because then your costs are going to be higher. You know, but, uh, you know, in Ireland, I, it it's a standard and, and a quality of living for the minimum earners. And it's not breaking the bank, in my view. That's personal view. The other thing that I but, think... But, yeah, I think you've hit on a good point. It is sector specific. So if you're yes, competing yes. in international markets and your costs are going up, and yes. therefore your you good is less attractive, that's yes. a problem. Yeah. But even domestically, I suppose, a bit, a bit like restaurants, there is a point of diminishing returns. If you have to put your prices up so much, volume goes down. But it's not going to be that minimum wage increase. It's all of the other yeah, factors. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's not just that. It's not that's. It could be the drop that's going to hurt you. But there's a lot of other factors in 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 certainly in in the in, in the entertainment and yeah, and hospitality. Yeah, hospitality. Yeah. Robbie, give us your take because. You come at this from the perspective of a carer, uh, somebody who has worked in the caring profession as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Hugely valuable work to society. Yep. Historically, not very well paid. Not very well paid at all. Um, unfortunately, there's a great amount of, of careers like this where you are invaluable to the service that you're providing. And I think... With with a lot of employers now, they have a they have this issue that they didn't have maybe twenty or thirty years ago, which is you don't have to also look after your staff financially, but you have to look after their mental well being as well. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have someone who is putting in thirty nine hours a week that they're getting paid for, but they're actually putting in forty five, fifty hours a week because of all the extra time that they do, especially when it comes to a caring role, sometimes you can be there for longer. It does damage your mental health it, it and and it does and employers now have the problem of realizing this and it it is hard when you're having to up that wage you know it is very difficult because an employer does have that added responsibility of taking care of their employees mental health mm. some of the feedback we've had from talking to businesses over recent weeks is that the Increase in minimum wage in isolation was probably something they could absorb. Coming at the same time as auto enrolment pensions, which will be about 5% of payroll, mm-hmm. along with extended holiday, or not holiday leave, uh, sick leave, and various other 
benefits, you could argue, perhaps right uh, rights, that the timing was wrong, mm-hmm. that coming together, it was too much for some of these businesses to absorb. Margaret. I just want to come back to the, your point on the pensions and how, even though I know it's all about timing, I, I'm not sure there will ever be, anyone will ever agree there's always the right time to do these things, mm. but how important that is in our society today to that, you know, when someone starts to work, that they're paying into a pension so that when they retire, they're going to be having a good lifestyle like they have in other countries. I've seen it Norway, Holland, that they've, when they introduced this scheme that everybody, once they're on an earning, when you're, when you're earning, that you're paying into a pension. And it's a small contribution. Now, there's a whole culture against it here in this country, I know, and it's a, it's a whole mindset that needs to change. But, the but we want the money now. It, we don't want yes, to put it away the for the future. the value of it yeah. is so important. Not only the value long term, we're at very infant stages of introducing this now, but give it 20 years, the pot of money that can be used for investing and it will be re-spent back into the community, the, the quality of life for, for these people who are living young, longer, you know, who will want a proper pension to have a good life. You're retiring at 65. You know, like that is the new, what are you going to say, 50. Mm. You know, so like you have a long t- li- life and like your state pension is not going to cut it. But the politics of it can be challenging because people want the money now. People, um, it's small money. Yes, and but but here's the other. But the employer he, pays a contribution, and then it's up to the the employee if they want to contribute. But here's the other consideration that right now we have high levels of home ownership in Ireland. It's seventy something percent. I don't remember the exact figure, but that's going down. And we have a generation who are finding it really difficult to buy a house. And that generation, many of them will be renting while they're drawing their pension. And will they be able to afford, if they just have old age pension, to pay their rent in addition to their living costs? There's so many sections that we need to fix here. Because that's another one Mm. about, you know, being afraid of of mortgages and ownerships of of homes and, and... you know, that's a whole different story. Look, if you couple the minimum wage with the, so if you couple the minimum wage with the VAT rate increase in the hospitality industry, I think when, as you say, when you're putting these things together, this is the downfall of the industry at the moment. It's not one factor. The government should have had the foresight to realise last year when they were determining when they were going to put the VAT rate back up, the incremental stages that they were increasing the minimum minimum wage. They should have done their 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 their, their forecasts and realised you can't mm. put all these together and people stay in business. Something has to give. You can't stop <laughs> increasing. When inflation is so high, you can't stop the increase of a minimum wage. People at the bottom need to be protected. The people at the bottom mm. of the earners need to be protected um, and you, they need to earn a certain amount to have a, a minimal standard of living. So the, the VAT rate being increased at this time uh, is almost criminal in terms of uh, how a business is meant to survive. And very soon, next couple of months, revenue will be calling in the warehoused debt from 2020 and 2021. And deep figures on midlands103.com yesterday showing how many hundreds of local businesses uh, have yet to pay that money back and some of them may not be able to. But let's not be 
just pessimistic in our outlook. We have a lot to cover on the week that was with the Friday panel. Robbie Donnelly is here, branch administrator with Down Syndrome Ireland. We'll ask you a little bit about what's coming up in the organisation very soon as well. Thank you. John Shields, CEO of whatsfordinner.ie and Margaret Guich Lawler, a director at Shanderi Elevator Escalator Consultants. Otherwise known as SEEC. Midlands Today's Friday panel. Thanks to Comfort Keepers Home Care. A caring voice and a daily dose of joy. Comfortkeepers.ie. Now let's get to some comments. Robbie Donnelly. Yes. Caller says you are doing a fantastic job with a brilliant charity, but do you ever miss being on the radio? That's yeah. from Michaela. I do, Michaela. I actually do. Um, I, I don't miss the day-to-day running of the radio station with all the bits that get done behind the scenes because we have to do that. A lot of people think you just sit in a studio and push a button. There's a lot more to it than that, but the four hours in the studio that I used to do was where everybody had to leave you alone and you were being creative, and it was great. I really miss it. Uh, comment on the catering industry from a chef who spent 30 years in the industry and has never seen an employer give a damn about catering staff. What would you say, John? Uh, I mean, there are probably bad operators out there. No, no, I'd I'd have to disagree. I, I know numerous operators that work day in, day out in the restaurants or the hotel with with their staff and treat them like family. And it's a two-way it's a two-way relationship to make it work. Yeah. Caller asking, what was the name of the software business? The virtual reality guys in Athlone, Mersus Technologies, M E R S U S. I think you'll hear a lot more about them in the years ahead. Cash, how much cash have you got on uh, at the moment, Robbie? Probably loose change. Probably just over a euro. Do you carry cash, as a rule? No, not so much now. So it's, you're a tapper? I am a tapper, but I want to be able to use more cash. I really do. Why? Because it's so easy. Because when you've got cash in your pocket, if I had €20 euro on me, I would know that today I have €20 euro to go and get some lunch, pick up a few bits and pieces that I need, and that's it. Once that cash is gone, that cash is gone. But that little piece of plastic is an unlimited line directly to my bank account. And I can get home and go, I was only supposed to spend 20 euro today, and how come I've spent 63? How has that happened? It's willpower. But it's so easy to go into a shop and see a special offer and go, oh, four tins of beans instead of the one that I need. Why I know, not? I know. You know? But I in Ireland... I yesterday found 40 euros. Now, that's the boat, yeah. That great. <laughs> in Ireland, we seem to have an emotional connection with the cash. Emotional may not be the word. But it's something you don't see everywhere. You were in China not so long ago, John. How much cash would you have seen transacted? Very little, Will, to be honest. Um, predominantly everything's done by the tap of a phone and was done as far back as eight years ago. Mm. I've been going to and from China for almost 20 years, you know, on an annual basis, well, because my wife's Chinese. Um, and I think it's as... Uh, nearly as far back as a decade when I noticed that 60 and 70 year olds were paying not not just you know young people who who are afraid with technology you know 60 or 70 year olds were paying a taxi driver in the back of this uh, cab 
scanning the, not even having to go round to the front and pay him, yep. just touch the phone. That's super technical. You know, so, yeah. But is that motivated by convenience? Because you will always have somebody saying, well, that's the Chinese Communist Party, their big brother wants to yeah, watch. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 I, I think Will's right. So, for example, movement of everything in China is tracked by the government, movement of people especially, and their habits. So something as simple as if you were travelling from one city to another, you can't buy a uh, train ticket, whether you're Chinese or not, without formal identification. Mm -hmm. So if you're travelling from one city to the next, the Chinese government know when you're travelling, the journey you've taken. When you check into a hotel, you need to produce government ID. So in terms of the Chinese side of it, it's for a specific reason. Now, here in Ireland, I think it's a very different reason where places are choosing to go cashless or not. And I suppose back to what we were discussing at length, business costs. Some find it more economical and efficient to be in one camp or the other, not in both. Yeah, but I'd like to say, Will, that, okay, so so from my studies, I believe there's roughly 2.8 million people in the workforce in the state of Ireland um, and it's estimated that uh, approximately 2% of those people are paid their salary in cash. Now, I would hazard an educated guess that most of those, that 2% are people at the bottom again, uh, people who maybe work in the restaurants or the cleaning industry or market people, etc. that are paid near enough a minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So those people are already receiving the, the, the smallest amount of salary uh, as would be acceptable. Now, for those people to have to take that cash and deposit it then mm. into a bank who's going to charge them mm. every time they tap a card or use that cash, they're incurring more costs, which they have no control over. Mm. Now, having worked in the, the hospitality, hospitality industry for so long, um, on a weekly basis, you would have a staff member come up to you and ask you, is it possible, John, can I have a sub today and you can deduct it from my wages on Friday, etc., whenever. Um, and this, this is very common. Now, if they deposit money into a bank when perhaps they might be leading to being overdrawn or there's a direct debit going to hit that they couldn't cancel in, in time, mm-hmm. um, that money is going to get eaten up as soon as they put their, 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 the, the cash into it. 2% of the 2.7 or 2.8 million is 55,000 people, Will. Mm-hmm. So there's approximately 55,000 people in this country being paid cash that cannot afford a cashless society. Well, they need to be able to walk into uh, a restaurant, a bar, uh, a supermarket, a pharmacy and pay in cash. The reason we mention it is the government is introducing access uh, to cash legislation, it will require many things. For instance, a minimum number of ATMs to be provided by banks uh, per head of population. Also, certain sectors such as supermarkets, grocery stores, pharmacies will have to accept cash. Not everybody, mind you. But there's another side to this, and it's the charity sector. Mm-hmm. And, OK, historically we hear you rely on you know the coppers and the donations and the shaking of the bucket. Lately, GoFundMe has really taken off, or I donate platforms like that. People can make online donations. So How important is the loose change? The loose change, believe it or not, we've actually found that our collection boxes are collecting more money now these days because we are in a society where people don't like having loose change in their pockets. 
Yeah. Believe it or not, no, they don't I, like. Yeah. So they, so especially in convenience stores, garages, when they're in there, they see the thing. Oh, this is a great way of us to get rid of the change, which is great for us. On the other hand, you're then having to, like you said, John, go and deposit it into a bank where there used to be ten cashiers. There's now only two, so you're longer in the bank depositing the money, and you're paying charge, and mm, you're paying a charge. Two, two, if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys, we're almost out of time. Anything coming up on behalf of Down Syndrome Ireland that we should know about? Uh, for the Offley branch, it is our 14th anniversary this year, Will. We have a huge raffle taking place right the way through this year. The final is going to be on the 31st of December. We've got a car that we're giving away from Hugo Luna Motors. Nice one. Uh, we also have a €4,000 holiday voucher from Midland Travel, plus wow. other prizes just go to our social media. You can buy the raffle tickets. They're twenty euro. They make a great present for anything. Valentine's, Valentine's Day. <laughs> there yes. you go. But even you now, know, Margaret. There you there go. There you go. Okay. That's a valuable there present. There you go. That's a but, valuable But even present. things like, you know, when the kids are leaving school, teachers hate getting hand creams and chocolates what and a things. Great idea, yeah. 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 And and they're available right the way through the year. Yeah, they're but on as the I Christmas say, presents orders. Sorted. Yep, there, you, there go. you go. Big companies. You want to give bonuses to your staff? Will <laughs> there is uh, there's there's you know fantastic. That's it. Forty years of awfully Down syndrome, which is a great milestone. Well done. Well. Yeah, very worthy cause. Yeah. 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 And yeah. also, Margaret, for Valentine's Day, you could also log on to whatsfordinner.ie. Yes. And perhaps get <laughs> well, a very see, nice slap up. Very real. very very lucky because he's actually married to a five star chef. Ooh. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, he doesn't know how lucky he is. There you go, John. If you ever reopen the restaurant, you can make a hire. Very good. No, it's Mar- what's to say? The quickest way to man's heart. Yeah. <laughs> so, Robbie Donnelly of Down Syndrome Ireland, uh, John Shields, Chief Executive of What's For Dinner.ie, Margaret Gweech Lawler from SEEC in Port Arlington. That's where we leave it today. Sinead Hubble put it all together. We'll chat to you Monday morning from nine. Bye bye. Midlands Today with Bus Erin. Use your TFI Young Adult or Students Leap Card on board Bus Erin services as part of the Transport for Ireland network. Visit buserin.ie today.